0: Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, well, thank you, Kirsten.
1: Good to see all of you here this morning. How are you guys doing? You good? Good to see you. Good to see you. Yeah, I'm doing all right. Thank you. Appreciate you asking. Nobody ever asked me that. I'm kidding. I'm I'm actually, I I told first service that I am actually having, uh, I'm in a good mood this morning because it was the first day that I can remember in a long time looking at the seven day forecast and not seeing any triple digits in the forecast. And so I'm really excited about that because it, you know, and I guess social media tells you that women get really excited about fall. I get super excited about fall, so I don't know what that makes me necessarily, but I am really excited. It put me in a good mood this morning. So hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll get to see fall come really soon and we'll get to enjoy it and remember why it is that we live here in this wonderful place. But uh, we are continuing this morning. Thank you for joining us this morning as we continue our series called A Perfect Union, where we are looking at the, uh, we've been looking at the most important, most significant sermon in human history, the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus. And uh, it's week six this week, and so we are actually at the halfway point of, of this, believe it or not. We've been going through looking at Matthew chapter 5. We're going to finish Matthew chapter 5 today. Um, But as we do, I want to remind you of a couple of things as we get started this morning. There's a couple of things that we've said throughout this series so far, but I think they bear repeating as we start this morning. And first of all, as we are looking at the Sermon on the Mount, the agenda, the approach that we've had throughout this series has really been to take a step back and to really listen to the voice of Jesus. We have, uh, as we've mentioned, we have a lot of things that have been going on throughout this year. There are a lot of things that we've had to work through that have caused difficulty. And there are a lot of people telling us about how we should be processing this, how we should be looking at it, what's true, what's not true, how we should be clinging to hope, what is really hope, what does it look like to move forward together, and those kinds of things. And so I think one of the things that we have really zeroed in on and honed in on is really listening to the voice of Jesus amongst all the other voices that are speaking at us right now. And we believe that that is because when we hear Jesus speak, we hear the truth that we need to hear, we hear the grace and the mercy that we need to hear right now, we hear the hope that we need to hear as we listen to the faithful and life-giving words of Jesus from a place like the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been committing to presenting that to you every week as a preaching team as we've gone through this. We've been trying to look at, okay, what exactly is Jesus saying here? Let's pre- present it as honestly and as straightforwardly as we can. Now certainly we have certain applications and interpretations as we're up here in terms of how we apply those things. But we've been trying to present to you just faithfully what do the words of Jesus have to say so that God can speak, exactly, uh, uh, God can speak directly to you about what he wants to say to you and what you're going through and how you're experiencing uh, life around you. And, and in the end, the, the point of this all is that a perfect union means a lot of things in this series, but most directly and most importantly, it refers to our union with Christ. In the end, what we want to see happen is that you are more united with Christ, who is our Savior King in the end of this all. And we also want to remember that as we can, as we encounter the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is not just talking about you know, these things that uh, are not meant to take place and are not meant to really take root in our lives. He's not just talking about kind of this, this uh, exaggerated reality. In fact, he's talking about what he actually means for us to experience and actually means for us to live out here today. And so those kinds of things bring hope to the real world that we live in right now. So, When we read what Jesus is talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount, we listen to his words, one of the things that we see is that Jesus is focusing on really drawing us to himself as our king through heart-type language. In other words, there is a difference between teaching and preaching, and what Jesus is doing throughout this sermon is he is preaching directly to the heart. He's engaging our hearts where teaching may tend to engage kind of our minds. and is more about imparting information. Preaching in the way that Jesus is doing it is designed to inform us, but designed to inform us in a way that actually captures and changes our hearts. And so it has to do with head knowledge, but it has to do with heart knowledge, and then it has to do also with then how we live that out. And I think in doing that, what we see is that Jesus is taking these laws of the Old Testament and applying them in a way that is speaking to the purpose behind these laws. So that they're not just living this way for the sake of living, but living in a way that changes us and draws us closer to who Jesus is. We see a place like Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. We realize that this was God's intention behind his law and behind his words all along. And it says this, Now what God is talking about in the Old Testament through the prophet Jeremiah is something that represents what it looks like for his law, for his word to really impact our hearts. And Jesus is picking up on that promise and saying that this is a different kind of thing that he is presenting to us through the Sermon on the Mount. It's a different way of living, it's a different way of understanding the world around us because it is totally a different perspective and it is a change that has happened at the heart level. Which brings us to the section that we have been in over the past couple of weeks, and we're going to finish today. We're in the last part of Matthew chapter 5. As we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we started into this new section where Jesus uses the phrase, You have heard it said, but I say to you. And he uses that six times throughout this section. And we've been encountering them in pairs. We looked at the first four over the past couple of weeks, and we're going to look at the last pair uh, this morning as we finish out Matthew chapter 5. Now, this is such a significant section in the Sermon on the Mount that, his, that uh, actually biblical scholars have identified this as the section of the antitheses. It has its own name to it within the sermon because these are antithetical statements that Jesus is using to say, look, you have heard it said this, this is how it has been taught to you, but I tell you that this is actually the purpose or the reason behind what, the, what God's word is to you and why it is that God is saying what he's saying. And I think this is such an important Thing to engage because as Christians, we are meant to think about how different the kingdom is from the world. And Jesus is highlighting the differences by using these antitheses. He's presenting to us the fact that this kingdom is different than what the world typically presents to us. It's different than what man-made religion presents to us. It is something else entirely, and it is different than, uh, it is different than anything else that we might see. And so as we engage these last two antitheses here this morning, we're actually going to see, I think, a couple that are some of the most relevant for us because they're the ones that probably affect us and impact us the most. They're also the ones that tend to be the most relevant for what we're experiencing right now. We're going to talk about uh, retaliation and loving our enemies. So what does it look like to kind of uh, respond in in, in 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 an environment that's full of conflict at times? And how do we respond to those things in a way that is gracious and merciful? And so, we're also going to see one of the most well-known sayings that Jesus ever spoke, which is the saying, turn the other cheek, and talk about why that's well-known, but really, in many ways, why that's probably one of the most misunderstood phrases as well. So, we've got a lot to talk about here this morning. We're going to start here in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 38. Jesus continues in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Let's we'll stop there for a minute. And I think one of the things I'm realizing is that the, the house lights are really dim right now. I usually can see you guys a little bit better, and I like to be able to see. Do, do we have, can we turn those house lights up a little bit? <laughs> you can't see your Bible I know, you need to be able to see your Bible, too. That's the thing. So let's bring the, can we bring the house lights up a little bit? Like something's weird this morning. I can't put my finger on it, but it's because the house lights are a little bit dim. so um, But anyway, all right, well let's continue with this until they can get the lights up. But there we go. Wow, there we go. All right, great to see your wonderful faces. Okay, so let's start in this. So Jesus starts off this section with this, another phrase that we see, you have heard it said this, but I say to you this. In this case, he has said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Of course, he's referring to a law that was on the books and a law that was actually in the Old Testament law, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, which had to do with kind of legal retaliation. All right, And so when we hear that phrase, eye for an eye, to our modern sensibilities, it tends to think, we tend to think that it's, it's a pretty harsh law. right? In other words, for someone, if you end up taking someone's eye to lose your own eye, or if you end up taking someone's life to lose your own life, it's maybe a basic form of justice, but in some ways, to our modern sensibilities, it seems a little harsh. But in reality, the reason why these laws were put on the book in the ancient world is actually to mitigate some of the extreme responses that would have happened to somebody who was wrong. So in other words, the way that things would typically happen in a situation where this law was not in place is that if somebody was offended in some way or somebody was damaged in some way, their reaction typically towards the one who was the offender was to not do less to them or even equal to them, but actually to escalate the response. Right. So in other words, let's say someone I had a goat and someone comes over and kills my goat. Typically what would happen is I'm not just going to go kill that person's goat. I'm probably angry at them, so I'm going to go kill their donkey instead. Right? I kill their donkey, they get mad at me, they come back and kill two of my goats the next time. You can see how the escalation increases until it gets out of control, and probably what ends up happening is one ends up killing the other one unless they stop it at some point. And so this law was put on the books, eye for an eye, to make sure that justice was done, but that it was kept at just equal for equal, loss for loss. And so it was enforced by the local government or it was enforced by the elders if you lived in a village, but this law goes all the way back to some of the earliest examples of human law that we have in history. So if you've heard of the Code of Hammurabi, one of the earliest codes of of human law that we have, also the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament, both of those documents have this law in place. And it was designed to actually promote justice equal for equal. So, when Jesus takes on this law, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, he's not exposing some terrible and harsh law as we might think about it. He's actually addressing a principle that was commonly accepted as a fair and just way of dealing with, with what would happen to you if you were wronged in some way. It was a commonly accepted right. I think today, similar, a similar application might be suing for damages in civil court. So, someone You know, if someone owes you money or someone causes some kind of damage and they won't pay for it, you have the right to take them to civil court or to small claims court to get that money back. That's kind of an equivalent of what the eye-for-an-eye law was in the ancient world. So then, for Jesus to say, (laughs) that you have heard it say eye-for-eye, tooth-for-a-tooth, but I say to you this... Was a, pretty, was a pretty strange and shocking stance for him to take. But as we're going to see, this is the heading for really four more examples and illustrations for how he fleshes this out. Now here's what I'm going to say to you ahead of time. I'm going to tell you, we're going to explain what Jesus says here in this passage, and then later on we're going to talk about why exactly he is saying this. Because as we hear him say this, it seems a little bit strange for us. Like what exactly is the point? What is he getting to? But there is a point to all of this, and we'll get to that here in just a minute. Well, let's go through these examples, and these are really kind of ancient scenarios, right? In other words, when Jesus talks about us being slapped on the cheek, I don't know how many of us have been slapped on the cheek recently. It was more kind of an ancient expression. We'll talk about that. I don't know if anyone's taken your cloak or your tunic lately, but these are things that are referred to as kind of these these, uh, ancient day scenarios, but they have timeless principles tied to them, and that's what we're getting at. So first, let's take take these for how Jesus presents them. First of all, he talks about slapping the cheek. Now in the ancient world, this was not so much, slapping of the cheek was actually an insulting, more of an insulting action than it was a violent action. We tend to think of like a violent aggression as slapping a cheek, but in reality what Jesus is pointing out is an action that was commonly practiced in the day as an action of insult. So in other words, although it was a violent action, the violence wasn't the point. The insult was the point. So to slap someone on the cheek was a way of demeaning them or insulting them. It was typically done in a public setting to communicate shame towards that person or to shame that person in front of other people. So Jesus is talking about this practice, and he adds to it this this one caveat, this important detail. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, now, this is even more of an insult to be slapped on the right cheek, because imagine this. The right hand was commonly understood as the action hand. In this case, it would be the slapping hand. And so if you're going to slap someone with your right hand on the right cheek, it's really hard to slap them with an open hand on the right cheek. What you actually have to do is slap them with a backhand. hand. Anybody want to demonstrate, by the way? It's a lot easier if I have somebody that I can slap. Anybody want to be slapped this morning? Birthday slap, Adam? No? No? Okay. All right, next week, all right, <laughs> gotcha. But you can imagine, I mean, I don't need anybody else, but You can imagine what that would look like, right? Because if I'm facing somebody, the only way I can slap somebody on the right cheek is to backhand them. Now, this is significant because in reality, the backhand slap was twice the insult that the open hand slap was. And what it meant, essentially, is that the person who was the slapper, if you slap somebody with an open hand, what you were saying is, I want to shame you, but you're my equal." If you're backhanding someone, what you're saying is, I want to shame you, and I want everybody to know that I know that I am better than you. It was a really demeaning act. And Jesus says, as my disciple, if that were to happen to you, someone comes and demeans you and insults you, slaps you with a backhand, don't return insult for insult, don't slap them back, instead turn the other cheek and allow them to slap that one as well. So we go to this place of personal retribution there where people might expect to say well if somebody slaps me they insult me they in some way damage me then i have every right to respond in like kind but jesus says not so in the kingdom and look turning the other cheek is typically presented in this way as a non-violent or pacifist teaching this doesn't really have much to do with like self-defense and self-defense against violence it has more to do with the aspect of being insulted and so the question becomes, why is Jesus telling us to be people uh, like this who respond this way? I mean, is he just telling us to be victims and to be doormats and just to allow other people to take advantage of us and injustice to just happen everywhere without saying anything about it? Well, it doesn't seem to, this doesn't seem to necessarily be the point. Instead, what Jesus is saying is that the justice of the kingdom is different than the way that we might typically understand it. And to, do the, and, and to illustrate that a little furthermore, he continues on with the next example. And the next three illustrations happen in rapid-fire succession. And they all illustrate this same point of justice in the kingdom based upon this perspective. The second example he pulls up is related to a legal setting involving rights. Jesus says if someone wants to take your tunic, allow them to take your cloak also. Now a tunic was commonly something that that you wore under your garment. So it was like an undershirt or a t-shirt that you would wear at the base level next to your skin. And you would often give your tunic up. If you owed somebody money and you couldn't pay right away that debt that you owed, somebody would take your tunic as a deposit until you were able to pay back the money that you owed to them. And in extreme cases, if you owed them even more than what the tunic was worth, then they would also take your cloak. But the cloak was an indispensable piece of clothing because for a poor person, it was also used as like a sleeping bag at night. And so under the Old Testament law, for example, if somebody took a cloak and a tunic from somebody who owed them money, they were required to return the tunic, or the cloak, excuse me, to them every single night before sunset, so that person would have something to sleep on. And of course, that person would return it in the morning, and then it would be returned every day at sunset until the debt was paid off. So this law was established to protect the rights of the individual, especially those who were in poverty. And Jesus says, so for Jesus to say, for someone who takes your cloak or your tunic, give them your cloak also, was actually to say, if someone wants to take advantage of you in the courts and not obey the law in the way that they're supposed to, and treat you unjustly, allow them to do that and lay down your rights. Now, why would Jesus do this? He goes from personal retribution, now to a civil court arena, and a place where we are basically absorbing this injustice in and of ourselves. Well, the third scenario continues this thought and then applies it more to the aspect of government and kind of this idea of oppression. So at the time, the Roman government had on their books this law that required any Roman citizen to help a Roman official, whether he was a political or military official, with anything that they wanted them to do up to a certain extent. So in other words, if there was official business that a military official needed assistance from a citizen on, he could require that citizen at any time to help him out with that duty. These are typically reserved for situations that were emergency situations. You know, someone's getting arrested and they get out of hand, and so they need to enlist the help of a citizen who's, who's watching or who's standing by. Um, if you think about when Jesus was carrying his cross, um, they, asked, they asked Simon... To carry, one of the Roman officials asked Simon to carry Jesus' cross when Jesus couldn't carry it all the way up the hill. Those kinds of things. That's an example of something that was a law that was on the books. Now, what the Roman officials did with the Jewish people was they used this in a way to continually abuse and oppress them. In fact, they used it in ways that were abusive and unjust beyond what the law was intended for. They would use them to force them to do harsh labor. They would use it to force them to be humiliated. They would use it in ways where they would just have fun with the Jewish people and basically remind them that we, we, are, we rule over you, right? We have authority over your lives. And so when the Jewish people heard of this law or they were reminded of this law, it was something that they despised and hated because it reminded them of everything that the Romans would do to oppress them and to take advantage of them. And the reason that Jesus says when someone forces you to go one mile is because there was a limitation in the law to which they could only force you to go one mile with them or the equivalent of what walking one mile would be. And so when Jesus says when somebody forces you to do this, not only go one mile with them but go two miles with them. If they're oppressing you, if they're treating you unjustly, if they're mocking you, they're taking advantage of you, continue to go and serve and humbly volunteer to serve them even more. And then finally, in the final scenario that Jesus presents, he moves to a place of provision and giving. He gives one key phrase in all of this. It's about giving. And he says, when somebody comes to you and asks you for money, give to them. Give to them whatever you have. Give to them whatever they need, whatever it may be. And in a situation where typically you would expect to get interest from money that you're giving or loaning to somebody, Jesus says don't only not ask for interest on that money but don't even ask for that money back if that person can't pay. He says that's not only to do for family members and for people who, and you're not only to loan to family members or friends and people who might pay you back but as Luke chapter 6 says, you're to loan to anyone who asks and just give freely of that money without expectation of being paid back. So, when you put all of these things together, what you see is a pretty extreme example of what it means to just completely lay ourselves down in some ways at the mercy of other people. The question becomes, why exactly is Jesus telling us to live this way? What does this look like? Because pra- practically speaking, if we live this way, we do become doormats. People will, people will just like in the ancient time, people will, we will be put our, putting ourselves in a position to be completely taken advantage of. So why is Jesus doing this? Well, I think we need to avoid two things again when we think about this. First of all is that Jesus is not exaggerating when he says this. These are not just kind of statements of hyperbole and things that Jesus really doesn't mean for us to take seriously. Like, here's the real meaning of this. This is really symbolic, but in reality it means this. No, Jesus actually means for us to take this seriously, at least on principle. And secondly, Jesus is not just adding new laws, stricter laws during the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, he's not coming along and saying, those old laws weren't strict enough, and so I'm coming to raise the bar a little bit. Old law said, no adultery, but I want to tell you, no lust. Uh, no, not no murder, but no name-calling and no anger. Not only should you abide by the law, but you should be willing to sacrifice all your rights under the law. I don't think Jesus is doing that either. I think to think about that as just some higher strict form of laws is just to kind of promote more legalism, which is not what Jesus is trying to promote here. So what exactly is he getting at? Well, as we look at this next section, it begins to give us a little bit more of an answer. Verse 43 starts this way. Jesus says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy.'" You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we've covered before in this series and and talked a lot about the fact that when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said, is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself is like it. That is the second commandment. Now, when Jesus said that to a Jewish audience, that wouldn't have been too much of a surprise. It wouldn't have been shocking for him to say that because anybody who looked at the Old Testament law could tell that's exactly what God is saying. Love God and love others. The big question, though, that Jesus and the thing that Jesus is pointing out with this antithesis is not about what it means to love our neighbor, but really defining who is our neighbor. Because the question at that point was, was to say, who is our neighbor? Which, in other words, who is it that I am supposed to love? For most Jewish people and for most of the religious leaders, they said, your neighbor is your friends, it's your family, it's your village, and it's anyone else who is a Jewish person. But those Gentiles who are outside, the Romans and the Samaritans, the half-breeds, those are the people who are our enemies, and you're not required to love them in the same way under the law like you're required to love your neighbor. Well, Jesus comes along with this statement, and he says, look, you've heard it say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, which was actually something that the religious leaders has added on to that, had tagged on to that command. But I tell you this, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I think there's a reason why Jesus saves this particular antithesis for the end. Because in the end, what this does, loving our enemy, ties the whole aspect of justice of the gospel, justice of the kingdom, all together. And here's how. Because this would have been completely off the charts for the average person to hear. It would have been scandalous for Jesus to say this in the first place. Because you've got an audience of people, Jewish people, who are under Roman rule, And they would have been looking at Jesus and saying, you mean those people who use violence against us and treat us like slaves, those are the people you're telling us to love? Those people who tax us to the point of poverty, who have taken our land and our homes and made them their own? Those people who mock our ethnicity and mock our religion and mock our God? You want us to do what? You want us to love them? Because look, Jesus says, not just don't hate your enemy, he says love your enemy." You may know that uh, in in the ancient Greek language, there were four different words for the word love. The word Jesus is using here is the word agape love. It is action-based love. It literally means that in order to love somebody, it directs us to actually do the best that we can for that promotes the well-being and the flourishing of the one who is being loved. Often at the expense and the sacrifice of the one doing the loving. And so Jesus is essentially saying, for your enemies, promote their well-being at your own sacrifice, if need be. And they're looking at him and saying, those people, those are the ones who you want me to promote their well-being over my own? Have you seen their well-being? Have you seen their life? Have you seen my life? But this is the crux of the justice of the kingdom, and here's why. It all goes back to the gospel. And this is what Jesus is driving at at the end. In the end, It has to do with a heart thing, as we said before, but it also has to do with a freedom thing. And what Jesus is saying here is that these are not the things you have to do, these are the things you get to do. This is not how you have to live in the kingdom, this is how you are freed to live in the kingdom because of what the gospel has done on your behalf, because of what Jesus has done through the gospel on your behalf. Because in the end, we are freedom-seeking people. We are made in the image of God, and God makes us to seek freedom. But many times, the way that we define freedom is very different than the way that Jesus defines freedom when he says, when the Son of God sets you free, you will be free indeed. We typically root our freedom in the systems of this world and the things that the world can provide for us to be free. And Jesus says in the end, the only way that you can truly be free is by coming to me. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so Jesus' freedom is different. He sets us free from not having to rely on things like personal retaliation or the rights of human government or world circumstances, money, status, anything else, so that we can be free to give, so that we can be free to lay down our rights if we have to, so that we can be free to be people who don't have to return insult for insult, to retaliate when we are wronged, to get that pound of flesh that we think that we're owed, to enact revenge when we think somebody deserves it. It's not based on, this freedom is not based on what Caesar can give, it's not based on what POTUS can give, but it's based on what Jesus freely gives us by his grace and mercy. And some of the freest people who have ever lived have been Christians who have lived under extreme oppression and persecution. I mean, think about the Apostle Paul for a minute. The Apostle Paul was probably one of the most persecuted Christians that ever lived and yet if you read through the new testament what you realize is that he was probably the most free man outside of jesus who ever lived and so when jesus brings all of these things up whether it's anger or lust or the need for revenge or our inability to serve and to love people or inability to love our enemies he's exposing things in our hearts that are still bound up that he wants to free and that he wants to bring freedom to The famous quote from the missionary Jim Elliott has so many applications in the Christian life because it's all about this aspect of Christian freedom. And he said it so well, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It's a rebuke to us in many ways. I'm challenged by that personally because I think we often get in a mindset where we are fighting so hard to keep what we cannot keep in the end. And the tragic thing is that we fight, we argue, we spit, we we scream and we kick about things that we cannot keep. And the irony of it all is that Jesus has already given all of it to us that we would ever need, and it can't be taken from us. And at the same time, when we get so involved in seeking freedom tied to the world, we forget and lose sight of the freedom that Jesus has already given us in the gospel. Jesus has not given us salvation so that we can find more security in this world. He's given us salvation so that we can find security in what he has done for us to free us. And now here's where the kingdom justice is different than the justice that we typically experience in this world. You know, we cry out for justice as human beings. It's part of just, I think, who we are. And you can see this in kids. I have four small kids, and they still say this almost on a daily basis. The phrase that every kid says as soon as they learn how to speak, right? That's not fair. (laughs) right it's a cry for justice but that kind of justice is more of a retribution type justice i'm crying out because something has been done to me and i'm not getting back what or i'm not getting what it is that has been taken from me the justice of the kingdom is different and what i mean by that is think about this for a second jesus himself was the ultimate sufferer of injustice on our behalf He was falsely accused, he was publicly mocked and insulted, he was literally backhand slapped by a Jewish official during an unjust trial where he was being convicted of false charges. He was then beaten and executed for crimes that he didn't commit. And all of that was done because of our crimes, because of our sins. He was the ultimate victim of injustice so that we wouldn't have to experience eye for an eye tooth for a tooth retribution justice from God. Instead, he loved us when we were his enemies. Do you see how all of that's coming together? This is not just instructions on how to live in new laws. This is actually a picture of the gospel that Jesus is describing here. Romans chapter 5 verses 8 through 10. while we were still his enemies. He took on injustice so that we wouldn't have to face eye for an eye justice, the wrath of God. And it was all for a greater purpose, to reconcile us to himself. And this is the perfect justice of the gospel of Jesus' kingdom. Here's what it looks like in our lives. Just three things real quick. First of all, justice is mercy. You know, We were shown, ju- we were shown mercy by God so that we can be people who are merciful towards others so that we are freed up to not have to return in, insult for insult. That we don't have to rise up and defend our own pride so that everyone will know that we were right and they were wrong. We don't need to exact out on, on someone else the revenge that we feel like they're, like they're due. No matter how much you think someone else owes you because of what they've done to you or taken from you, if you believe the gospel, one thing you know is that you have always been, you have always been forgiven much more by Jesus than than what you think someone else has done to you. No matter what they have done to you, you have been forgiven more by Jesus in every single situation. We have been shown mercy so that we can be merciful. Justice is mercy. Secondly, kingdom justice is faith. Now look, I know that when we talk about these things, things like revenge and forgiveness and turning the other cheek and showing grace and mercy, I'm aware that there are some deeply hurt Hurtful things that have been done and said to some of us in this room. And when you're hearing this, it's unimaginable for you to think about what it means to forgive someone that has done something so deeply hurtful to you. And when you think about turning the other cheek and not seeking justice or retribution, it's really difficult for you because that thing that was done to you was not fair, it was not punished. And in some cases, it might not have even been acknowledged by the person who did it or by anyone else around you. And so it still has caused you deep hurt even to this day. But this is where Jesus tells us to trust him and to have faith. So that even when we can't see that justice is being done, we're able to give it to him, the one who says, vengeance is mine to repay and that he has taken that to the cross. And to trust him with it. Brendan Manning says this, you will trust God to the degree that you know that you are loved by him. And so the solution is not to get vengeance or to get revenge or to get retribution that may or may not come for that thing. It's to dive more deeply into the way that you know that you are loved by Jesus so that you can trust him more fully with that thing. And that's what Jesus is asking us to do, to trust him in the words that he says, even though we may not understand them, even though we may not see how they are being played out. But we know that we can trust Jesus because, and what he says because of what he has already done for us. And then finally, justice is love. Because we have shown, been shown mercy by God, we don't operate under the economy of retribution and revenge. We operate by the economy of mercy. And since God is the only one who can bring true justice, we give him all of the injustices that we have experienced and all of those things that have hurt us and caused us pain. And this is incredibly freeing when we do this, by the way. And we need this kind of freedom in order to love in the way that Jesus calls us to. I think, one, again, one of the reasons why loving our, our, our enemies is the last thing, the last one of these antitheses, is because it's a litmus test for how we've understood the gospel. If we're not able to love our enemies well, we have to go back to the gospel and understand what it is that we're missing about how much God loves us. If we understand how much God loves us, it makes it so much easier to love our enemies in the way that we're called to. And when you line all that up, you see that this new justice of the gospel changes our orientation towards everything around us. We don't have to act in the crazy, chaotic, conflicted, uh, angry way that other people in our world are acting right now. We don't need to return insult for insult. We, we don't need to rise up and defend our honor and our pride and to demonize people who we consider our enemies so that we're not able to love them. Several years ago, Dan Cathy, who is the uh, president of Chick-fil-A restaurants, experienced this kind of crisis-type moment in his life where he had to decide what it meant to really love those who he felt like were on the opposite side of where he was at. Um, At the time, Chick-fil-A, he had come out as the president of Chick-fil-A and made a stand about his belief on same-sex marriage and how he believed that as a Christian that it wasn't God's will. And as a result, you can imagine, it upset a lot of people from the LGBTQ community. And as a result, um, one man by the name of Shane Winmeyer, who was the the director of Campus Pride, which is an LGBTQ campus uh, organization, launched a boycott, and a protest against Chick-fil-A restaurants. You may have remember this. It was in the news a lot. The media played it up as well. And what they found out also is that Chick-fil-A was supporting some organizations that they felt like were not LGBTQ friendly, and so they decided to kind of mount up and protest against this. Now, on the other side, those who were supportive of Dan Cathy and his position on same-sex marriage basically led the charge to go spend all your money at Chick-fil-A and support Chick-fil-A and all that was going on. You may remember that as well. Right? There was this challenge like spend all your money, eat all your meals at Chick-fil-A so that we can support Dan Cathy and his position on this. And before you know it, it happens like typically happens when you got two sides of people who, have, who are very emotionally invested in something like this is that it got to a fever pitch sometime around 2012. And in 2012, one day, Shane Windmeyer got a call from Dan Cathy. Dan Cathy was on the other line and he said, hey, I just want to talk to you, Shane, about what's been going on and I want to understand a little bit more about why you were so upset, why you decided to organize this boycott and this protest and all the rest. And that discussion between two men led to further discussions down the line where they understood and exchanged ideas with one another in a gracious way to a point that actually led to a friendship. And and it was such a friendship that later on that year, Dan Cathy invited Shane Winmeyer to be his special guest at the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl, the football game that that Chick-fil-A sponsored. And they were in that box together, and they showed up publicly together as friends who were enjoying a football game together. It was a very significant action because, of course, as you can imagine, Dan Cathy and Shane Winmeyer risked being ostracized by, these, by their base or their community, if you will, that was supporting their side of the thing. But in the end, what Dan Cathy realized and the, way, and the reason that he reached out to Shane Winmeyer in the first place was realizing that he is called to be a peacemaker, a reconciler. And the men still have their convictions about same-sex marriage and about LGBTQ issues and those kinds of things, but they have a friendship now because one man decided that there's something more important, that I'm to be a reconciler, I'm to be someone who's not returning insult for insult, who's not trying to get justice out of a man who tried to shut down my business by boycotting it, but I have a higher calling and a higher priority to be someone who's a peacemaker and a reconciler, to show mercy and understanding and grace towards those who even the world would say are my enemies. Again, we're being told by voices all around us in this world who are our enemies. If you listen to people, they'll tell you these are exactly the people who are your enemies. These are the ones you need to be afraid of, depending on your perspective. And and we're also being told what we should do to our enemies. We have no shortage of examples of what it looks like to hate our enemies and to stand up for ourselves by returning insult for insult and to fight seemingly all the way to a place of defeating the other side until we get what we want. And in the end, if we aren't wise about this as the church, we're just going to look like everyone else, which is tragic because what we've been called to be are people who are different, are people who display a savior and a king who is different than the kings of this world. We have been called to be a stark and welcome contrast in the world, and I believe that if we lived out this way, that Jesus is describing here in the Sermon on the Mount, in particular these antitheses, I mean, think about this, the Beatitudes, the antitheses, if we actually live this way, how might the world and the culture be changed by the way that we live? It would be such a welcome and stark contrast to what we see as the alternative out there right now. And the biggest thing is that it would bring attention and glory to Jesus. And look, during this political season and beyond, you have a choice about whether or not you want to truly be free. And I'm not talking about what you do in November and how you vote in November. I'm talking about whether you take Jesus' invitation to truly be free in the midst of all this other stuff that's swirling around us. Not to seek the freedoms of this world, but to hold those things loosely, to hold them in their appropriate place. But instead, to more, more intently press on to grab hold of the freedom that Jesus offers, which truly sets us free. Let's pray. I want to ask the band to join us back up here. I want to pray for us as we understand what it means to embrace this freedom that Jesus has offered us. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning thanking you that it is true that the Son truly sets us free. Lord Jesus, you are the one who holds our freedom in your hands. You are the one who has told us it is for freedom that we have been set free. And so many times we are blind to the things in our hearts that bind us and that aren't completely free yet. And either we don't see them or we don't want to deal with them or we excuse them in some other way, but Lord, your faithful and gracious and loving work in us is to free us from those things. So I pray, Spirit, that you would work in us. That you would work in us to continually free us up so that as we look at a list like this, we don't see these extra laws and duties and things that we have to do, but we see this list of things as like, this is what we are freed to do. This is what we get to do. That it does look more beautiful to be people who are not out for, for retribution and revenge all the time, but those who lovingly turn the other cheek and who walk with people who are broken so that they might be reconciled and made whole by Jesus. And yes, sometimes to have to take it on the chin because we have gotten in a place where we have been taken advantage of, but in the end, we don't hurl insult for insult. We don't demand justice, but we know that we have been given everything in Jesus. So we don't need to clamor and fight and spit and kick for the things of the world because we've been, and we've been given everything in the kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would impress that upon our hearts. I pray you would give us more freedom as we move forward. And in the end, that as we are united more who you've called us to be, Lord Jesus, that we'd be people who experience this freedom that you have offered to us that we would know that things like recognizing the issues and the sin in our heart is a gracious work that you do so that you might free us up even more. We thank you for your love and grace, knowing that because of Lord Jesus, because of what you have done, we can trust you. And we confess that we don't trust you nearly as much as that warrants. We pray all these things in your name, Lord Jesus.
0: In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor.
1: Next week as we continue our series, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6. Uh, you may know that this is where we find the Lord's Prayer, the Model Prayer, the Disciples Prayer, gone by a bunch of different names. But the point is what we see is that Jesus is teaching us what prayer is all about. We're going to talk about prayer and fasting next week. Pastor Wes is going to lead us through that. And so I'm preparing you right now, and I'm telling you this because what we're, we want to challenge you to do over this next week is that is, is in your prayer life, uh, be challenged in your prayer life and even look for something to fast from this week, if you would. Like maybe it's not a day of fasting from food or maybe it's fasting from social media for a couple days or fasting from, I don't know, uh, my kids need a good fast from Roblox and so maybe they're going to fast from Roblox this week, forced by their father. I don't know if that really is a spiritual thing or not, but, um, but, but whatever it may be, if there's something you feel like you, that the Lord is leading you to fast from, fast from it this week. Uh, If you're a person that doesn't pray a lot and you've really been thinking about, I need to be praying more, allow this to be that week that starts you on that path. And here's the reason we're doing this. We We want you to be able to experience this ahead of time so that when we talk about it next week, you can note your experience and what you went through this week. How did it feel? Was it difficult? Was it strange? Um, did you feel connected to God? Did it feel like just kind of more of like religious duty and that kind of stuff, which it can feel like at times? Or did it feel like something that was life-giving? Was it what, whatever it was, right? Whatever your experience was, we want you to be able to experience that this week so that next week, as Pastor Wes leads us through that and we get to see the purpose behind prayer and fasting, that it'll connect to kind of what we've done over this past week together, okay? We're not going to have you fill out a checklist next week. We're not going to have you like stand up and share your story. We just want it to be something that you experienced this week as we look forward to next week together, okay? All right, so with that being said, speaking of prayer, we want to remind you that we have prayer cards back on the table as you leave this morning. If there is anything that you would like us to pray for, we take those cards and we pray over them as a staff. We put them all together. We pray over them on Tuesday morning staff meeting and then throughout the week. We also have elder team and prayer teams that pray over those. And so we take seriously the opportunity and the privilege that it is to pray for you. And so if you have something, whether it's in your own life, family member, coworker, whatever it may be, write that down, drop it in those offering stands. We'll make sure it gets to the right place this week. Great to see you guys again. Have a wonderful Sunday, have a wonderful week. Go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.